We are in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5 this morning. By the way, happy Halloween. My name is Pastor Mike. If you're visiting with us this morning, um, we're in chapter 5 of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, we're going to begin in verse 17 here in a moment, and we'll be spending our time looking on verses 17 through 20 in what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I don't know about you, but as, as I'm getting older, um, I'm finding myself a little bit better at assessing things in life and what's important or even what matters. Um, for example, I used to wrestle with this. I got messed. I got picked on about it. But um, it doesn't matter that I don't like peanut butter. It doesn't. And it doesn't matter that you may love peanut butter. It, it really doesn't matter in the big scope of things. And every time I say I don't like peanut butter, someone asks me, well, are you allergic to it? No, I'm not. And then they'll ask, the second question is always, well, do you like peanuts? Yes, I do. I just do not like the combination of peanut, butter, whatever that mix. I've never gotten a flavor for it. But that's okay if I don't, and you do. You know, it doesn't matter that a lot of us here are Chiefs fans, and some of us aren't. It doesn't matter that we have some Cowboy fans sprinkled in here. We have some Bronco fans present, uh, you know, and we have a, a Patriot fan that we get to all show grace to and Nick. Um, but it really doesn't matter what team, what sport, what uh, thing you like to support with your time. Um, it really is not going to impact me in any way. We can pick on each other every now and then, but it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that uh, many of you who would confess you've seen almost every Hallmark movie made. You love this time of year because they're already launching Christmas stuff, and they got like, what, four billion new Christmas movies this year. Um, but it doesn't matter that you have, and I have not seen one in my life. Um, I have seen other movies that have wasted my time other than a Hallmark movie. I'm not saying Hallmark movies waste your time, um, just, but it doesn't matter if I did, but uh, I just don't watch it. Um, it doesn't matter if you think Taco Bell is a real Mexican restaurant. It doesn't matter. I mean, that may be your place to go. That may be your thing. It doesn't matter if you think McDonald's is good food. Um, at one time I did, but it really doesn't matter. We may think it's weird, at least some of us, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you love or hate Star Wars. It doesn't matter if you know something about me that my favorite cartoon strip is Calvin and Hobbes. I love that cartoon. I still laugh at it when I read it. It doesn't matter if you did not know that Calvin is actually named after the theologian John Calvin and Hobbes is named after the philosopher Thomas Hobbes. It's nice information. Some might seem it be useless, but it really doesn't matter. There are things in life that don't matter. Would you all agree? We all have preferences. We all have things that we enjoy, um, but they may not impact someone else in the same way they're going to impact us. But at times, we can get those out of whack, and we can have convictions about the wrong thing. And so this morning, what we're doing with our passage is we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus has begun defining what a blessed life is and how we should live as being defined as blessed, and then what it does in living the blessed life, and that it makes us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And today we're looking in verse 17 through 20, where Jesus is going to tell us four things that absolutely matter. They matter for everyone. They matter for every believer. They matter for every unbeliever. These four things are going to impact us and be able to have a blessed life. They will impact us and be able to be the salt and light of the world. They will impact us in how we uh, present and proclaim the gospel message. They will impact our witness. They're going to impact our convictions. Ultimately, these four things that Jesus is going to lay out are going to impact everybody's eternal destination. 
And so this does matter this morning. And so we're going to read through the passage of Scripture, and we'll walk through it. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Some think that as they come to this passage within the gospel or the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is beginning to transition to a new subject. Uh, I do not believe that is what is happening. What I see is Jesus is flowing from the blessed life, what our identity is in the blessed life, and how we are to live in that identity to be in the blessed life. And here it is. To live in the blessed life, to be in that identity of salt and light, it calls for convictions. It calls for us to understand that there are some things in life that are unconditional and they matter. And what Jesus does in these four verses is he begins to set up what he's going to do in the remaining of chapter 5 and be able to expand and expound on some of the laws that have been mistranslated or not understood. Jesus is telling us right here what we believe and what we have convictions on in life matter. He opens up in verse 17, do not think. And unfortunately for us, we can't physically see the crowds that Jesus is teaching. We can't see the disciples. We can't see their facial responses, their body language, and how they're responding to what Jesus already laid out. But when Jesus says, do not think, because he is God in the flesh, because he knows the hearts of men, it, it should be obvious to us that there are people within this audience that Jesus is teaching on this day who are thinking exactly what Jesus is now telling them in verse 17, to not think. Jesus has just made a statement concerning our identity in verse 13 through 16. Here in verse 17, he's making a statement about his own identity. The word abolish can be read as to undo, to do away with, to destroy. Jesus' statement here is something he is going to have to deal with throughout his ministry. When people are going to come and question him concerning the law, they've already done it in his ministry concerning fasting and concerning the Sabbath. But Jesus says, concerning the law in verse 17, this is what is speaking of the Jewish people and what they understood as the law of Moses. It's also known as the Torah or the Pentateuch. Pentateuch means five books, speaking of the first five books of the Old Testament. The Jewish people would always also consider the law what is known as the Ten Commandments, which we can read in the book of Exodus in chapter 20. For the Jewish people, which is Jesus' audience on this day, the law was sacred. And to bend the law, to mistreat the law, was blasphemy and worthy of death. Yet by the time Jesus' ministry has begun, the law had began to revolve around man-made traditions known as the oral law or the scribal law. And one thing we learn about Jesus in verse 17 is he is not hesitant to take on sacred views and sacred things of his audience. For the Jews in this day, the law and the oral law together combined for strict way of living, a legalistic ritual and legalistic rules. 
For a Jew to be righteous, which all Jewish people wanted to be righteous, they would not only have to adhere to the law of God that we know from the Old Testament, but they'd also have to live by the Pharisees and the scribes' interpretation of the law. So we have ten commandments that were given in the Old Testament. Well, the Pharisees and the scribes went from the ten, and they expanded it to 248 regulations and 365 prohibitions, which the Jewish individual would have to live by in order to be declared righteous. These were the man-made laws or the man-made traditions which Jesus is going to take on later in his ministry. But he isn't referring to man-made laws here. He is referring to God's law, which he's going to expound here in a second. The phrase, the prophets, there in verse 17 is to speak of the writings and the narratives of the Old Testament. So when Jesus says that I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets, he's saying I'm talking about the entire Old Testament. He's telling us, look, you need to understand I'm not here to do away with the Old Testament. Rather, I have come to accomplish what it actually says and is instructing you to do. And so the very first statement about what matters in life for us is it matters what we think and believe about Jesus. To begin with this statement, we must understand, I don't know where everybody is this morning, but you cannot deny the historical Jesus. There are more things written about Jesus than there are about any other historical figure in history. So if you were to make a statement, I don't believe Jesus actually existed, you would also have to make the statement, I don't believe Abraham Lincoln existed. I don't believe Muhammad existed. I don't believe Siddhartha Gautama, who created Buddhism, existed. I don't believe Joseph Smith, who founded the Mormon Church, existed. And I don't believe the founding fathers of America existed. An atheist cannot make the statement Jesus never existed because there's more historical information even outside of the Bible to prove that he does than all these other History proves outside the Bible, outside of the Bible, that Jesus existed in this region at the same time the Bible says he did. History proves outside of the Bible that Jesus had a large following for several years. History also proves outside of the Bible that Jesus was crucified by the Roman government because the Jewish leaders pushed for it, even though most historians didn't quite understand why. History proves that. Even an atheist can't deny that Jesus existed. So what does it come down to? What does it really matter when we're looking at Jesus and understanding who he is? I got three questions. This is what matters when it comes to Jesus. Is what he taught truth? That matters when it comes to Jesus. Because if he did not teach truth, then we don't need to follow him. And we don't need to listen to what he has to say in Scripture. The second question is what Jesus did in dying for the sins of the world and resurrecting from the dead real? That's the next biggest question when it comes to Jesus. Did he teach truth and did he die for sins? And rise from the dead. Not just die, he had to rise from the dead. Is that real? The third question is, is the identity we're giving concerning Jesus in Scripture accurate? If we are unsure of any of the answers to that question, or we say no to any of those questions, then we don't know Jesus. You may have created a Jesus to fit your needs, but you don't know 
Jesus. We don't get to make Jesus into who we want him to be. And throughout Jesus' ministry, if you wrestled with those questions, throughout Jesus' ministry, when people had Jesus physically with them, he had to explain time and time again who he was because his own generation wanted to create him into something that he never intended to be. In verse 17, Jesus is telling us, and he's telling, us, telling his audience that he is the Lord of the law, and he is the full embodiment of God's word. Now, to be the Lord of the law means that Jesus was equal with God. Because if he's Lord of the law, well, God gave the law. The Lord delivered the law to God's people. So if he's Lord of it, then he's also equal with God. To be the full embodiment of God's word, Jesus was the living, breathing word of God. Meaning what he said had the same authority as God's word of the Old Testament. And the Gospel of John captures this truth concerning Jesus Christ. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and all things were made through him, and without, without him nothing was made. Only Jesus was able to accomplish the law and the prophets. He says, I've come to fulfill them. The only way he's able to do that, if he is God in the flesh. No human being can make the claim that Jesus just makes here in verse 17. But this is why the Jewish people had all these regulations, they had all these restrictions, because they were trying to interpret the law, they were trying to understand the law. And Jesus says, look guys, I fully understand it. I understand it exactly the way God meant for it to be. He says, I understand and I live by the law perfectly. I understand what the prophet said about me. I understand the salvation that I am bringing to you and to the world. And here's the thing, guys. I fulfill it all. That is a huge statement. In the Gospel of Matthew, already just in the, the first four chapters, Matthew has been led by the Spirit to actually lay this foundation of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies. Already we've had eight prophecies from the Old Testament which Jesus has fulfilled. And Jesus is telling us he didn't come to, to set aside the sacred scriptures or even to do away with them. Instead, he came to fulfill them and to bring them to fruition. And it is the fulfilling of Scripture that Jesus does perfectly, does everything that God laid the foundation for. This is why Jesus is able to make this statement concerning his identity. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Because only Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophecies perfectly. Now, no other world religions believe this about Jesus because they don't understand Jesus. If we had the time this morning to investigate all world religions, and when I say world religions, I'm saying anything that's not Christian. All world religions have one similar aspect to them, and that all world religions have a work-based faith. What that means is, is as an individual, I have to do something, live a certain way, accomplish a certain thing in life in order to get to God. And they give it all sorts of different names, but this is a work-based faith. But when it comes to Christianity, our belief is that Jesus did the work. And Jesus did the work to make the way to God. And by our faith in who Jesus is as according to Scripture, 
We then produce works because we understand Jesus Christ. And that's the biggest difference between Christianity and all other world religions. Is Jesus did the work, we simply place our faith in the work of Christ, and then we live for him, which produces good works or good deeds or good fruit. But if you say you're a believer here this morning, and your belief is that you have to continue to do something to maintain your salvation, to continue to earn your salvation, then I got to tell you truth. You have not trusted in Jesus. Because Christianity is not about us earning our salvation, maintaining our salvation, or working for our salvation. It is placing our trust in Christ and Christ alone. And if you're a seeker here this morning, If you've yet to make that statement of faith that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the Son of the living God, you're seeking after him, trying to figure this thing out. But you think that, okay, i got to get something right in my life. I've got to fix this. I've got to get better at this. I've got to get rid of this. Then you have not come to understand who Jesus is and what he did for you. The book of Ephesians tells us it is for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So our belief and understanding of Jesus is this, and this is what matters. Jesus was God in the flesh who took all of our sins and the full wrath of God upon his body so that we might be forgiven, saved, and given eternal life. And Jesus did this once and for all, and the only reason he could do it is because he fulfilled the law and the prophets. He was the perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. Many Christian writers have dealt with this throughout history from Martin Luther, John Calvin, Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Josh McDowell, Philip Yancey, and even Lee Strobel. Because what we think and believe about Jesus is the utmost important thing because it concerns our salvation and our desire to preach salvation found in Christ alone. From verse 17, then Jesus tells us in verse 18 what else matters. It matters how we view God's word. Jesus says that, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. When heaven and earth pass away or disappear, this is when all things are going to be fulfilled. It's speaking about when the new heaven comes to earth and the new earth And the new Jerusalem is established, which is engulfed by the presence of God, which we read of in the book of Revelation. But the English doesn't really capture what Jesus has been saying to his audience on this day. When he said, not an iota, not a dot, some translations, and maybe yours, try to draw out this meaning. Say, not even the smallest detail, or the smallest letter, or stroke of the pen. And those phrases may give us a little bit more detail about what Jesus says when not an iota or a dot, but it's still not all Jesus is saying. In verse 18, Jesus is drawing from the Hebrew language, which is what the Old Testament is primarily written in. And so the iota would refer to the Hebrew yod. Throw it up there, Ethan. The Hebrew yod, it kind of looks like the English uh, apostrophe. The yod is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And if you were to turn to Psalm 119, which you don't have to, but you can note it later, Psalm 119, right above verse 73, you see the word yod. It's the 10th letter 
of the Hebrew alphabet, and it's the smallest of all the letters. And so this is what Jesus is saying when he says not an iota. Not even the smallest detail will pass away from God's word. And then he says, then not a dot, which is adding emphasis to it. He says, the dot is the Hebrew kariah, and it would be similar in English to some of our letters. Throw, throw the C up there. Okay, so you have the C. Now throw the G up there. The main difference is that little line that cuts in, right? Go back to the C. C. G. Be like I'm on Sesame Street. All right, so it goes, that's the main difference, but it's a significant difference, isn't it, when it comes to words? And this is what the Kariah did in the Hebrew language. It, it completely changed the word and what it could mean. And so Jesus is telling us about the absolute authority of God's word goes all the way to the smallest detail. And not even the smallest detail of God's word is going to cease to exist or become irrelevant until all things have accomplished and been fulfilled. Until Jesus comes back, God's word is going to be relevant. It is going to be truth we can turn to. So this means for us is how we view God's word is important. And I've seen over the past several years in the Christian traditions that they've been beginning to change concerning God's word. I have my own ministry friends, some of them still in ministry, who do not believe that the Bible is inerrant. Inerrant means incapable of being wrong or being without faults. We hold, I do, this church preaches it, that the Bible is the inerrant word of God. And yet I have come across people in ministry who do not believe that the Bible is 100% God's word. They believe that over the course of time, there's been changes. There's been additions and subtractions and altercations. But here's the problem with that belief. If you hold that belief right now, here's the problem. Which parts of God's word are actually accurate? Which part of God's word should you actually obey? If there have been additions and subtractions and altercations and changes throughout the year, as a pastor... As a church, we believe God's word is 100% what God intended to be. And here's why we believe it. If God had the wisdom and the power to know how to save us from hell and from our sins, then surely God has the wisdom and power to protect his word over the centuries. With that said... <laughs> Not every translation or every version, that's probably a better word for it. Not every version of the Bible is accurate. So if you go to a Christian bookstore and you go to the Bible section, there are multiple versions of the Bible. We're not going to say translation because it's all translated in English, but there are multiple versions of the Bible. If you use the Bible app, I know a lot of people use the Bible app. At least that's what I'm assuming you're doing when you're on your phone, but I'll just, there you go. If you use the Bible app, on the Bible app alone, there are over 50 versions of the Bible. I'm willing to, to wager that in this room this morning, there's at least six different versions of the Bible. I preach from the English Standard Version, so there's one. I know some here prefer the New King James or the King James, so there's, there's two more. I know there are some here who read from the New Living Translation, some from the New International Version, and some from the New American Standard Bible. 
Have I forgotten one that's in this room at the time? So that's, that's at least six that we have in this room. But when it comes to Scripture, here's what we need to understand. Not all versions are created equally, nor do all versions translate directly from the original text of the Hebrew of the Old Testament or the Greek of the New Testament. What I'm not telling you to do in this moment is to go to the Christian bookstore, well, they're closed today anyway, but to go to a Christian bookstore or go on christianbooks.com, I'm not telling you to go buy a new Bible. That is not what I'm telling you. The only reason I would tell you that is this. If your primary Bible, the one you use all the time, the one you read from and study from, is the message, then go get a new Bible. No, don't go to new, find me, we'll get you a new Bible. And this is why, okay? I'm not saying you can't use that version. I use the message every now and then just to, to help me kind of get a new picture of a passage of Scripture. But the message clearly states it is a paraphrase. Now, a paraphrase means a rewording of something. We do not want man's rewording of God's Word to be our primary source of Scripture. We want to know what did God actually say. So if, you, if you're unsure if you have a good version, one way to do it is to go into the very beginning of your Bible. There's an introduction. They'll tell you how they came up with their, their version or their translation of Scripture. If you're here this morning and you use the Bible app, and you do not have a physical copy of the Bible, please find me. Because there's something about holding God's Word in your hand and reading it and be able just to underline it and highlight it, be able to have that, that sacred text. But what matters most concerning our passage in verse 18 is what Jesus is saying about God's Word. Jesus is saying this. It does not matter what society thinks. It does not matter what culture believes or accepts. It does not matter what mainstream ideology are concerning the issues of the world. God's word trumps them all because God's word will never change. God's word will never flip-flop its position and God's word will never fade away. And we can see how this is relevant. Just think back 70 years. I know not all of us have been alive for 70 years, but we at least had a history class. We've learned things from 70 years. Not, not 2,000 years, not 4,000 years, just 70 years. Think about how just in 70 years the world has changed its positions or flip-flopped on certain issues. Just in 70 years, most of the world has changed its position on racism and segregation. Just in the last 70 years, the world has changed its view on homosexuality and marriage. Just in the last five years, the world has changed its view on gender. And even here's more fun. Think about TV shows. When you were a kid, young adult, whichever time of life you want to go to, and you think about your favorite show that was on TV. Not, not the shows that are on today, back then. And then fast forward to TV shows that are on today. Do you think the shows, some of the shows that are on today and some of the shows that are on the kids' channels today would even be on TV 
30, 40 years ago? There would be so many people outraged, even if some of those shows got put into the movie theater, because the world changes. Here's the truth. God's word does not bend to the world. Rather, God's word calls the world to bend its knee to God. So the next time you're watching TV shows, maybe it's your Hallmark movies, and good old attorney Brad Bradshaw pops up and tells you, you may not like what I say, you may hate what I say, but I always tell you the truth. I don't know that about Brad Bradshaw, but I do know that about God's Word. There are going to be some things that God tells me in His Word that I'm going to love and I'm going to savor. And there's going to be things in God's Word that are going to convict convict me and they're going to hurt. Because God's Word will always give us the truth and it will never change until all has been accomplished. The next thing Jesus says in verse 19 is it matters what we believe. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And this is kind of a confusing passage, and I had to spend a lot of time in this passage just thinking this through through Scripture and what God has already said about Scripture. Because it seems like Jesus is saying there's going to be a ranking system in heaven. You know, you got the least in the kingdom and you got the greatest in the kingdom. But Jesus, first off, Jesus is using a play on words. He says relax. The word relax means to set aside or ignore. He says the people who set aside or ignore parts of Scripture, they're going to be the least in the kingdom. While the one who does Scripture and teaches Scripture accurately is going to be great. And this is not a statement that when we get to heaven... We're going to have different social structures, okay? There's not some of us who are going to be, we already know who's CEO, so there's not some of us who's going to be president in heaven, and some of us are going to be team captain, and then others are going to be water boys in heaven. That, that's not what Jesus is saying. It's not some social structure. The Bible teaches us, and the reason we know this is because the Bible teaches us that to show favoritism or to show partiality is a sin. And so if it's a sin on earth, then it's not going to be in heaven where there is no sin. The Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 3 that now that we're in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no nor male or female, for you all are one in Christ. And so here's what Jesus is doing, and something I think we all understand. How many here would say there have been believers, Christians in your life, that you have watched and admired? Okay, how many of us would say that we have watched, heard preachers and evangelists, maybe we've never met, but we've admired from a distance. We've admired their faith and their passion for God. Now, unfortunately, how many of us here would say there have been people in our life who didn't act like Jesus, talk like Jesus, look like Jesus at times, but they were a believer, but we really didn't admire the way they lived as a believer. Had any of those? Okay, so now we're kind of understanding. So Jesus is giving this picture because we've admired those who taught and did the word of God. They were great in our eyes. And then we've had these individuals who didn't do it so well. They relaxed parts of scripture and they were least favorable in our eyes. So Jesus is telling us it matters what we believe. And what we believe is seen by what we do and what we teach. 
book of James says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It also says, it's so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, it matters what we believe about Jesus. It matters what we believe about the word of God. Because what we believe and have convictions about will direct our actions. And they will direct our words. Finally, in verse 20, Jesus expands this by saying it matters how we live. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if it is at this point, if Jesus were to have a microphone, this would be like microphone drop moment, right? This statement by Jesus in verse 20 would have stunned his audience. I can just hear them gasping. <gasps> and the reason it would have stunned them because they would have been like, how in the world can we have a righteousness that would exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? Because these two groups were the pinnacle of the Jewish religious system. They were the ones believed to be the most righteous in society. They were the ones to be the closest to God. See, the scribes, they, they taught the law and they read the law. You couldn't be a scribe in the Jewish society without years and years of training. The Pharisees, they're ones who also taught the law, but they interpret the law. Yet Jesus makes this statement, if your righteousness does not exceed or surpass those you view as the most righteous, you're not getting into heaven. Can you imagine the hearts dropping? That's impossible. But what Jesus is beginning to do here in verse 20 is is let the people see that even though the Pharisees and scribes appeared righteous, their righteousness was all for a show. See, when the Pharisees and scribes would tithe and give offerings, they would clank it in and make sure people heard and looked and took notice. Wow, they must be big givers. And when they would pray, they would do it out on the street corners and they would use all these big, fancy, spiritual words so people would be like, whoa, they really must know God. And when they would fast and tear their clothes, they would do it so everyone could see, so they could have people say, wow, they are so holy and righteous. But Jesus has pointed out their righteousness was just a show. And he's going to expand on this beginning next week. We'll look at it. Is that they had a show of righteousness, but their hearts were not righteous. Remaining of chapter 5, Jesus is going to expand on the law. He's going to say, beginning in verse 21, you know what? You've heard it say that thou shalt not murder. But you know what? You're guilty of murder if you get mad at somebody because your heart's not in the right place. Verse 27, you've heard it say you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus is going to say, you know what? It's not just the physical act, but if you've committed adultery in your heart, if you've lusted, you're just as guilty. He would point to the heart, that it is the heart that needs to be righteous. Because Jesus is going to teach us that we commit sins from our heart. We have sinful thoughts from our heart. So you may have this to-do list and not to-do list, but that doesn't mean you're right. It doesn't mean you're living righteously. In verse 19, Jesus says, you know, here's the thing. Lawlessness, it ain't going to cut it. Then he comes to verse 20 and says, you know what? Legalism, it ain't going to cut it either. It's now his audience, and we are left with the question, what's 
going to make the cut? What is going to get us into heaven? And the point Jesus is making is that we must be found in his righteousness. Jesus obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law because he knew we couldn't. And it matters how we live because how we live reflects our Savior. We're called to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. We are to put on Christ. We are to have the mind of Christ. We are to walk as Christ walked and live as Christ lived and to keep step with the Holy Spirit. The only righteousness which would exceed or surpass those who are viewed as the most religious and most righteous can only be found in the one who is completely righteous, and that was Jesus Christ. The law was given to reveal our sin. The Bible says that we would not know what sin was if it weren't for the law, and therefore we would not know we were sinners. And Jesus came to fulfill the law so he could take our sin, forgive us our sins, and then declare us righteous by our faith in him alone. Rules and restrictions cannot save you. Salvation is in Christ alone in our, in our salvation. Here's the, here's the beauty of it. God gifts us with the perfect complete righteousness of Christ who fulfilled, verse 17, the law and the prophets. He did what we could not do, even in our best day and the best moment. And if we place our faith in him alone, we did that righteousness and we did eternal life. So then the question may be for some of us, are you found in the righteousness of Christ? Not what you can do, but what he did. Without it, Jesus makes it abundantly clear you will never enter the kingdom of heaven without his righteousness. And if you're here this morning and you're not certain, or you know for sure that you're not, then God has brought you here to accept his gift of salvation. And here's how it begins. You have to admit, not, not to Pastor Mike, not to a parental figure or guardian, you have to admit to God, I sin. Therefore, I am a sinner. I fall short of your holiness, and your perfection, and what you created me to be. The beauty of the gospel is God doesn't leave us there. Once we admit that to God, the Bible says that if we believe that God sent his only son to die for our sins, to take our punishment, and Jesus did on a cross, and they placed him into him, and he rose again to show he has power over death and sin. The Bible says if we believe God loves us that much, and that to be truth, it does not say we have to fully understand all the theological issues that go with it. We just understand that's true. That's what I need. And the Bible says, once I believe that in my heart, I must confess it with my mouth that I need forgiveness, I need Jesus, and I need to be saved. And Jesus be my Lord and Savior. And the word confess means to make audibly known, and this is why we come to this moment. It's a time of invitation. If you're here this morning and you are without the righteousness of Christ, that means you are without the guarantee of heaven. And that can change right now. Jackson's going to come up and lead us in a moment. If you're here and you've already made that statement, 
And the question for us, do I have the convictions of what Jesus says matters? Am I living by those convictions? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us, taking care of us. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you paid it all, once and for all, that we might be saved and be adopted as yours. Lord, be with us in this time. Be as your word tells us to not just be hearers, but doers of your word. And whatever you're leading your children to respond to, Father, they would have the courage to come down, kneel before you, to lift that prayer up, to repent of maybe a behavior that doesn't match where it should be. But Lord, if there's anyone here this morning, as they have heard your gift being extended to them and they know that's what they need, Father, I pray that they would come down and let it be known that they want to be saved. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the work you're doing in this moment by the power of your spirit. And we give you all the glory and praise all in Jesus' name. Amen.